You are listening to Science Boobies. Culturally insensitive commentary, space-time stuff and world news. In each episode, hosts Herbie Perlman and Brian Horostophiles Labrec will deconstruct the anatomy of the physical and or political universe. Brian is a writer and indie film god, and Herbie Perlman is a guru and spiritual advisor to the world's homeless Viagra enthusiasts. Find us at www.laser.yoga slash science boobies. That's right. I said boobies. Viagra. Yes. Yes. Just got so, some. Um, so I guess um, for this for this episode, I wanted to uh, finally get on tape a story which I've heard more than once and is definitely one of my favorites of yours. I don't think we've ever recorded it. So if you will indulge us, I want you to tell the full story of what happened when you got drafted and you made your way on the bus to the to the recruitment office, to the draft office. Okay, well, the story starts, as most stories do, before that. It started, okay. like, a year before that when we were at the beginning of the school year, my senior year at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were offered what was then called a 2S, which was a student deferment. And my friend Larry, 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 who, who was, he was standing in front of this place where everybody signed up for their 2S and he was passing out a pamphlet basically saying it was immoral for us privileged people to be getting this free get out of get out of Vietnam free card while mm-hmm. working class kids were going and getting killed. So I had you know, I went with every intention to sign up for this thing, but I read his read his one page sheet and then I started talking to him and I just I was struck with with conscience that he was this was a person that felt to me like he had some integrity so I I didn't sign up so okay. uh, so by the time it worked its way through it was I think it was I think it was probably February or March when I got drafted, I, I got called, and by that time, I had worked with the the Boston Draft Resistance Group was a, a wonderful group of people who basically taught people about what the boundaries of the drafting system were, so okay. that I spent a fair bit of time kind of just learning what I could and couldn't do. So, which, which was crucial because there are lots of traps they set, set for you. Really? So, okay. yes. So the day I got called for my physical, I was, um, prepared. I had with friends of mine, um, 
put um, made a T-shirt which which said because I because I had found out it was a process in the physical as you take everything off and mm-hmm. you have your just your T-shirt and stuff and then you go through this process. Well, I'd written on on the back of a T-shirt one out of ten draftees dies for LBJ who of course you will remember was the president at the time. Yes. Yeah. Um and uh so when I got after after this bus ride got to the it was in South Boston at the time, the South Boston okay. um draft draft army base draft where they did process draftees. Mm-hmm. Um and we got off the bus. We were um, we were kind of basically ushered in, and and there's a whole. I was taught, and and you know was with had the purview of they basically create. I mean, right from the beginning, they give you a number, and and kind of dehumanize you, and yeah. so. Right from the beginning, we were all gathered and, and they started explaining, you know, very technically, this is the process. This is what you'll go through and, you know, you line up and you will do this and then we'll do that. Right in the and, middle of yeah. that, yeah. I raised my hand and when nobody called on me, um, I stood up and said, could you please tell us why we're risking our lives to go to Vietnam? And <laughs> a fair question. Yep. It seemed to me a fair question, but yeah. at that point, the guy who was delivering the question thing asked mm-hmm. me, uh, are you trying to disrupt this process? Well, that's the first one of those kind of bifurcated fail safe trap questions and so i knew i'd been taught the answer the answer was no i'm not trying to to disrupt anything but if i'm going to be asked my uh, to risk my life i need to understand what the what the reason for this is and um so he said just sit down, and uh, and then, and then someone came over and uh, kind of kind of took me and basically, first of all, they 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 tried to um, to to grab me, but I said. Don't touch me. It's illegal to touch me because that that's that's another. I mean, if you don't know where the boundaries are, they'll do whatever they do and deny it later. But if you know the thing, you're in a better position. And this was this was like 1968, so they hadn't yet kind of dealt with a lot of resistors. Um, So you were the vanguard of all this. The at, the, at the beginning, cl- you know, yeah. I wasn't the vanguard, but close. It was, it was okay. early days of resistance. Okay. Uh, right. 
and of people participating in in the process, but disrupting the process by asking reasonable questions. Okay. So, um, so this guy brought me to the like the captain of the base, and the, the captain basically said to me, uh, "You know, you can't disrupt this process, uh, and and we we will will punish you if you if you are if you do disrupt." And I just said to him what I'd been taught to say: "I'm not disrupting anything. I'm going to be asked to risk my life. I need to know why that is." So. So it was a standoff, and he said, well, you better not disrupt this process. And he <laughs> and he sent me back, and at this point, uh, there was a little kind of roly-poly guy called Sergeant Brown. I still remember his name, Sergeant okay. Brown. Um, and Sergeant Brown was kind of delivering the next spiel as we were taking the mental test to see if we were smart enough to kill people. Um, and so he was delivering his thing, and I raised my hand again uh, and repeated my question. Could you please tell us? And um tell us why we're being we're going to be asked to kill. Vietnamese, and he said, "Never mind you, you, you disruptors, you resistors, you, you." And he had a few other choice names, and then he said, "He said to me, get out of here.'" And I looked at him and smiled, and I said, "No," and um, and he. <laughs> And he came over. He was like about five five, so he was like about the height of the chair I was sitting on. <laughs> and he then tried to, because I said, uh, it's not legal for you to touch me, so keep your hands off me. And so what he did was, it was those kind of seats with the arms that they used to have, um, wooden chairs. And he grabbed the, he put, started pushing the chair. But, uh, I sort of in a moment of inspiration stuck my heel at the front of the chair. So basically he knocked the chair over and all my papers like start, flew over all over the, the ground and he started picking them up. And I was smiling at him. And by this time, all the other kids were, you know, they were working they were class, 18-year-old. Yes, and they were starting to realize that it wasn't as controlled. as. And they started yelling and screaming at him. <laughs> and and um, and he didn't know what to do because uh, I was sitting there on the floor. And... Um, and he had all my papers, uh, and so he left, and then it was really chaos. Everybody was getting around, and and then he he came back with the same captain, 
And the, the captain again said to me, uh, are you disrupting this? And I said, no, I'm not. I'm trying to find out the answers to my question. And he said, come with me. And I, <laughs> and I said, I'd be happy to come with you. Of um, uh, and so he kind of brought me to his office and basically the first part kind of filling out the, the most basic information. He gave me my own individual, um, test administrator. And so I did that first part, and then I was uh, brought back into this process where um, we were taking the mental test, and okay. and the mental test was you could pass if you had a fifth grade education. So I I filled out the whole test. Let's pause there for a second. Can I just pause there for a second? So they're willing yeah. to put people in, in uniforms and give them a gun if they had a fifth grade education and send them around the world to kill people. Yep. Yep. Wow. That's that's the level of understanding you needed to to, to kill someone apparently. Yeah. Evidently. Wow. Um, and so. I was the first one finished, but unfortunately, I got two out of a hundred. Um, and so, so the administrator of this test sent me to the psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist said to me, uh, we know you go to Harvard. If you, if you think you're going to get out of being in the army by, by, getting a low score, it's not going to work. And I said, I'm not trying to get out. I want to be right on the ground because I've, I've taken some windowpane acid and seen that the real answer to this is to keep people from using weapons. And I want to be on the front lines so I can help people to understand that killing is not the way to go. And he awesome. just he just looked at me like his eyes were were saucers. Uh and and he he said, Well well you you should be an officer and I said, I don't want to be an officer. I want to be where the people with the guns are. Um, <laughs> and so kind of he kind of hemmed and hawed and, and kind of sent me back. And that was like the first part of things. Okay. Now, after, uh, after lunch, they brought us to the, the next part was the physical part. Now, for the physical part, as I said to you, I'd written on this T-shirt, one out mm -hmm. of ten draftees die for LBJ. So when that T-shirt came off and everybody started snickering and pointing at me and looking, someone came over really quickly and said, take off that T-shirt. 
so I took off that T-shirt. Um, but I've had a friend paint on my back, um, uh, hell no, we won't go, uh, which, which, which was a slogan then. So then, like, I had, there were the, all these army people scurrying around and finally they brought me, uh, they brought me one of these, uh, plush officers uh, bathrobes. They, they were, they were really thick terry cloth. And so everybody else was naked. And I had this luxurious army officer bathrobe on. Um, and so then we went through, um, the, the process, uh, about you know, they ask you if you were mentally stable enough to go, and I, I answered all the all the questions, and and um, and you know, basically, kind of basically said I I I didn't think I was stable enough to do something that had no point, and uh, they just okay. kind of kept pushing me along. And, um, and so finally, uh, after, after this process, going through this process of answering all these questions to see if you were sane enough to go and get yourself killed or kill somebody who you had no quarrel with, um, they, um, they, reached uh this place at the end um where they they had isolated me and I was with this group and they brought me in to the kind of whatever the office the officer's office was and the okay. captain who was the head of the base and a couple of the other higher ups uh kind of had my my information so to speak in front of them and um uh they one one of them looked at me and and said both the both the you 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 will be Happy to know, and the United States, uh, we will be happy to know that the United States Army finds you totally unfit for military service. Awesome. Uh, so I got a 4F, and strangely enough, as I was going home on the subway, uh from South Station back to Harvard Square, um I noticed that somehow um I still had the officer's bathrobe. <laughs> and I mean I ha I wore that bathrobe with honor for the next twenty five <laughs> years and Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. That's that's great. That's and and the funny the the funny thing was, I 
actually wrote up my experience for the Harvard Crimson. And the next year, uh, five other guys together did a similar thing. Based on what they uh, wrote in the Harvard Crimson. Yeah. Well, but that and uh, their own researches. They, they were, That's they awesome. were all kind of political people. So you basically played your part in keeping at least almost half a dozen kids out of Vietnam. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, those kids probably would have, you know, they, they were, they probably, I mean, the thing was that as a, as a college student, there were, there were lots of ways of getting out, but to actually, to resist like that was no, was disruptive of of the whole process. Yeah, like you you were going in saying, "Sure, I'll serve," but I need to know why, and you can't touch me, and yada yada yada. And they weren't prepared mm-hmm. for that, right? And and part of it was the the decision really before any of that happened that. I was willing to go to jail if necessary for, you know, I was hoping that wouldn't happen, but I was, I had decided that, that if that was the choice that I'd go to jail. Now, I don't know yeah, if I would have. Yeah. Cause you, you, you have to have that, like you, you have to have that in the back of your mind to give yes. you the strength to do what you did. Yeah. And you have to, and, and for them not to have, something to hold over you because mm-hmm. they have no power over you if right they can't take you in and, and if they put you in jail that's okay with you so there's nothing really to to do right, they, yeah, right. They well and you're you dangerous you're dangerous mm-hmm. both in the army or out of the army you're dangerous <laughs> to their projects they don't want you uh, on the front lines um handing out window panes to everyone right Right. <laughs> Although it would have been a good idea, I still think. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Um, that's awesome. Good. That's a great story, Neil. Um, uh, let me ask you this: like after Vietnam, uh, you know, ended and everything, and all the people that, that went there came back. Did you have any experiences talking to the people that maybe you knew from college that had gone to Vietnam and come back um, and told you about it? Well, I had some experiences, you know, with people who'd, who'd been to Vietnam and, you know, some of them had different experiences. Some of them were traumatized. I, mm-hmm. you know, I met Vietnam. I mean, there were, there was a substantial movement of Vietnam vets against the war. So there were, yep. there were those things happening. There were, and there were those, I was fairly, in those days, I was, Political and and um, connected to SDS Students for a Democratic Society, and so I was in those kinds of circles. And yeah, I, I talked to some people. Okay, cool, man. Well, that's that said, I don't know what I would have done. I I don't think I would have had the uh, the backbone to do what what you did at that point because that requires a lot of balls. I'm not quite sure if I have them. <laughs> well, those, yeah, yeah, sort of. As as a youth in those days, 
that seemed like some new age was opening up. There were, you know, there were there were people. There were, there was a community of people who were supportive of that. I mean, the the community aspect was, and having a community of support. Uh, was really important in, in yeah. the whole process. I don't know if I individually would have had, you know, what the wherewithal to go ahead if I hadn't had, you know, the support of the Boston Draft Resistance Group and, you know, there were people in SDS, there were, you know, there were the kinds of people I hung out with. So mm-hmm. there was a community of support. That's awesome. Well, yeah, and it definitely would have uh, contributed to you having enough uh, gumption and enough, uh, I don't know, it's a bravery or or uh, steadfastness or whatever to actually pull that off, you know. Right, so, right. Yeah. Right, there was information to be gotten, and then there was just, like, following through with it. Mm-hmm. That's crazy, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was an incredible feeling afterwards. Like, I mean, I'd, I'd never, I mean, I'd gone through Boston Latin School and Harvard and I'd sort of, I'd sort of been in the front of the line in the whole treadmill. And it was the first time that I actually kind of took a stand and and said no and it was incredibly liberating i mean it was it was amazing it was an amazing feeling of freedom almost the kind of freedom you'd feel if you just got the vaccine today wow let me ask you a question do you think that doing what you did uh, to get out of Vietnam, that whole experience kind of set you off onto a life of not conforming to society's norms. Uh, yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> it's kind of free thinking in in a lot of different ways, like a, a willingness to question the official story. Mm-hmm. Um, that the that at that that was a whole period of time when stuff that growing up I had just accepted, you know, American exceptionalism, the Mm -hmm. goodness of the American democracy project, all of that was just like from what I read and what I knew was fine. And I was all, all behind it until I learned enough to realize that, there was a story underneath the official story that yeah. wasn't so pretty. Apparently not. Definitely not. Uh, so that was a long time ago, though. It how was. Do you think it applies to, how do you think it applies to people that are trying to resist uh, the politicians and what they're trying to do today, like, you know, the Trump well, um, wing of the Republican Party and things like that? Well, you know, it's it it's basically it's today too. It's a question of you know what is a community that 
can avoid the coming extinction. I mean, we're we're on the path to extinction, and you know, unless no one seems to care, no one seems to care. No one, right? Or yeah, no one seems to really be doing anything at any high level. I mean, there are a lot of people who care, and a lot of climate scientists, and you know, political people, and you know, who are who would like to do the right thing, but the, they're, they're really outside any, any mainstream dialogue. And the mainstream dialogue is like between Trump and Biden. And, mm-hmm. you know, Biden's better, but it, the problem, I mean, the problem is, it's we're really on a path toward extinction and that for me now all these years later it's recognizing the truth of that because the truth of that is the source of grief and fear and you have to penetrate the grief and the fear and the panic and the regress to live inside the enoughness of finding kind of reciprocal relationships of trust and integrity that whatever happens, you can or I can live without regret myself to feel that what that I that I'm grateful for what I have and that yeah you know that's a whole community of people and a partner who is really supportive and and it's the recognition that it's you're never on your own and if you're lucky and find um a sympathetic community then it's it's okay to recognize the truth and to live inside that truth and it's possible even if that truth is really ugly like extinction 2112 mm-hmm. um that you I can live a satisfied life and feel that, you know, as an old man, you know, when the time comes, I can die, you know, and that, that the enoughness of living here and now and taking a deep breath whenever I remember Mm -hmm. is satisfying enough so that whatever happens, I have this sense that I've done the best I could. Yeah, and you lived true to yourself and you didn't just accept reality as it was presented to you and didn't just accept the explanation as it was presented to you. And you're questioning things like you're talking about extinction when everyone else is not because you know it's for, it's closer to the truth. 
than not the fact that we're heading towards something that like as you feel like we're all in a in a, in a pot of uh, boiling water or, or slowly heating water we're all frogs and don't yeah. and we're not going to understand that it's too dangerous until it's already boiling right and the official story is don't worry about it it's not really happening yeah and until it's and, too late and people kind of uh, most people not everybody, but most people kind of live that as if there's time. When, you know, deglaciation is death. Yeah, when the albedo is gone, things are going to start to heat up both <laughs> figuratively and when literally. The, when the albedo and the libido are gone. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like... Uh, this sounds like a um, a uh, climate change episode, but we'll do that for the next episode. So uh, okay, I'm I'm really happy to have gotten this Vietnam story though. That this this is awesome. This is going to be a good episode. Okay. Um, all right. So what I want you to do for the rest of your day, uh, Neil, is um, drink take coffee, a deep breath. Take, a deep, take, take a, a deep breath. Yes. Look out your window and see if you see anything unusual. Make sure to call. Uh, you know. Call the local authorities and and you know be on the lookout for your fellow citizens of Cambridge. I'll be on the lookout for my bike. <laughs> yeah, if you see someone with a bike with a half a lock hanging from it, you'll know it's probably yours. Yeah. By the way, if anyone wants to, any listeners out there, um, it, if you want to help Neil buy a replacement bike, just email at us at the email address on the podcast website. He'd be more than happy to accept the the funds for a new bicycle. Totally serious. I'll be I'll be holding my breath. All right, all right. Say goodbye, Neil. Bye-bye. This podcast is hosted by Brian and Herbie and was created using the internet, which is a series of tubes. Copyright 2021, Laser Yoga Media Cartel. Music by Ben Sound. You can learn more by going to www.laser.yoga slash science boobies. That's right. I said boobies. <laughs>